Please rise and bow your spirit for the call to worship. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. manifest to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and prosper for us the work of our hands. O prosper the work of our hands. You, O Lord, are more wonderful than our lips can proclaim. When we consider the awesome works of your hands, your love for us is more than amazing. You have trusted us with the whole of the earth and put everything we see under the care of our hands. Lord, O oh sovereign Lord, the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. 
Grace and peace to you this Lord's Day, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us worshiping here in the sanctuary as well as those of us worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the house of the Lord. Because it is God's house in which we have gathered, all are welcome. The word of welcome we extend is one founded in Jesus Christ, and therefore it is as broad and deep as the love of God. Let me highlight a few things from the bulletin, or about the bulletin for you, uh, for our common life together. The first is to invite you, if the weather is still not raining, to a time of fellowship on our 21st Street sidewalk. You can get there through either exit from the sanctuary. The second is to say a word about our new bulletin design. You'll notice it looks a little different from last week. Nothing is missing from it, except for empty space. We redesigned the bulletin in order to allow us to include announcements as we start to do things in person again, but also to keep us on a single sheet of paper. That is for the benefit of the environment and for the benefit of uh, being good stewards. And so we hope you will find this to be a useful tool. We are going to try to discipline ourselves to keep our announcements to those things that are immediately upcoming, but there's a a supplement to this that doesn't involve any paper at all, and that is you can sign up for a weekly email from the church that outlines everything we're doing that week to drop into your inbox on Monday mornings. If you would like to do that, just let the church office know if you're not already signed up for it. And of course, always, you can check our website for upcoming opportunities. Today is the fifth in a series of sermons, and it is the final sermon talk back afterwards. So at 12.15, those of us who wish to discuss the sermon will gather in the McCall room for a discussion that will be moderated today by Becky Yep. So I am grateful to Becky for that. With these things noted, I'd like to call now on Elder George Nutty, representing the Christian Education Committee, for a minute for education. Uh, The Adult Christian Education Committee has been hard at work planning our 2021-22 classes. It's a robust schedule, and I'm confident all of you will find a topic that inspires you, no matter where you are in your faith journey. The book of Ecclesiastes, Chapter 3, inspired the committee to establish a theme for this year. Chapter 3 begins, There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. You all know these verses, and and you may have already guessed, the theme for this year is seasons. Seasons refers to God's plan for each of us individually and all of us collectively as a church body. Ordering our lives by the Christian seasons offers us a way to deepen our faith as we journey in accordance with the life of Christ and the events of salvation. The seasons of the Christian year keep us centered in Christ and proclaim the story of our faith. Our CE programs are centered on four seasons for the year. In September and October, we are considering a season of discipleship, challenges of the Christian life. In November and December, we'll consider a season of longing and expectation, Advent and Christmas. In January and February, we'll explore a season of change, new conversations in the new year. And then finally, in March, April, and May, we'll begin a season of reflection and renewal. 
Lent, and Eastertide. Class topics are varied and thoughtful. Classes are both in-person and virtual, via Zoom. Stay tuned to the church website, the weekly emails, the monthly messenger for more information and registration. Today we conclude the Thinking Theological Sermon Series. Beginning October 27, the Reverend Cindy Jarvis will lead a series on theology and ethics. Dr. Nancy Duck, retired professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, and Dr. Katie Day, professor at the United Lutheran Seminary, will be guest speakers in that series. We are incredibly blessed to have so many talented people share their knowledge. We can be very proud of our church's commitment to adult Christian education, and it is an excellent opportunity to invite your family, friends, and neighbors to join us. Thank you. Let us continue our service of worship with our prayer of confession. Trusting in God who longs to mend our broken places, let us turn to God in prayer, first together and then in silence. Creator God, maker of all that is, has been, and ever shall be, you are the source of all our blessings. You have filled this world with flora and fauna and entrusted it to our care. From your good creation, we may take all that we need. But we have overreached, O Lord. We have treated the duty to care as license to do as we please, and the results are catastrophic. Forgive us, we pray. For our failure to see the world as you do. Instill within us the desire to serve as your stewards for all creation. These and all our prayers we offer in the name of Jesus Christ. Passionate and merciful, very patient and full of faithful love. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, in the 12th chapter, starting at the 28th verse. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and beside him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all her whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. The second lesson is taken from the book of Genesis. We read there in the first chapter, beginning at the 24th verse and continuing through the 31st. Listen for the word of God. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made... The wild animals of the earth of every kind, and cattle of everything of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything God had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Among the issues that Christians encounter in modern life that seem to generate more heat than light some of the time, we come finally to the matter of environmental stewardship. I am not going to wade into the particulars of public policy in this sermon, because that's your job. No, our goal over these weeks has been to frame a habit of mind that enables us to approach topics that we may have been taught to be uncomfortable talking about, but nonetheless are very real parts of our call to make our way as ethical humans through the world. Also, and perhaps more importantly, I am not an environmental science expert, and I refuse to elevate my ignorance to the level of someone else's expertise. There is enough of that going on in the world already. It is important to recognize our limitations. But recognizing our limitations doesn't excuse us from seeking the truth regarding the earth because the opening chapters of Genesis make it very clear that God loves what God has made. God calls it good and then God calls it very good. If we are called to love what God loves, and we are, then the church must have something to say about caring for creation because of our commitment to the truth. While the Bible holds many truths, it begins with a fundamental one, that God has placed humankind into creation to serve as God's stewards. And you remember from last week what a steward is. It's someone who manages something that doesn't belong to them. God doesn't give the world over to humankind just to have, but rather to manage. And God has some opinions about the management of what God has made. When I was a child, my grandfather had a garden. He would spend hours painstakingly maintaining it. He was a little bit of a neat freak, which I respect. And his rows of okra and green beans and corn were a sight to behold. One day I was out in the garden with him, and he said, to my mind, the most amazing thing, amidst saying he did this and this to prepare the soil and speaking about how he rotated crops, he added, and I let the land rest every seventh year. I was puzzled. So I said, you let the land rest? The Bible says to, he replied. When I remembered this many years later, I went and looked it up. And the Bible does indeed say to let the land rest every seventh year. We worship and serve a God who cares deeply about creation, not just the human creation that God has made, but the whole of it, every speck of dust and blade of grass, 
So much so that the very call for rest that God gives to humanity as a gift, God expects from humanity for creation. Last week when we were talking about money, a topic incidentally that we are not through with yet, we considered a false dichotomy that persists in the world that is extraordinarily detrimental to the life of faith. That false dichotomy is between the material and the spiritual. In talking about money, I observed that there is a somewhat pernicious tendency to think that we can divide the world into spiritual categories like worship and prayer and material categories such as money and politics. But the dichotomy is false because God made the whole thing and God loves the whole thing. So there isn't an aspect of our lives where God doesn't want a deep and personal relationship and connection to us. That's just who God is. That is how God has decided to be God in relationship to us, caring deeply about us. God, in triune nature, exists in deep and indivisible unity in three persons. To be made in God's image means to be made for the, with the capacity for deep community, for deep unity and integration with one another in life and in our communities. So no separation exists between the material realm and the spiritual realm. God made it all and God loves it all. But there is another temptation that comes with this false dichotomy, and it is this, to equate the temporal world with the material and eternity with the spiritual realm. And the risk we run when we do that is treating this world as being of inferior, grubby stuff and expecting that eternity is somehow made of finer stuff and therefore extrapolating that we can neglect the here and now. Now, Scripture does talk about a life to come, but it is remarkably vague about it, and for good reason. God wants us to be concerned with life now and to trust that God holds our futures so we aren't done with this world until we are done with this world. We live here. We are the stewards. We are God's agents in the world. And I know it's a little bit of a cliche to say we hold it in trust for the next generation, but cliches exist because they point to basic truths. God has entrusted us with the care of what God has made with the expectation that we will care for it wisely. So theologically, we know what not to do. We can't treat this world like it doesn't matter. Because it does. It matters to God, and therefore it must matter to us. It's not disposable. So what are we to do? How do we live a uniquely Christian ethic with regard to the world in which we live? And moreover, how do we live that Christian ethic when it is abundantly clear that some of the solutions to the challenges of modern life lie seemingly not in the hands of individuals, but in the hands of corporations and governments? How do we fulfill that great commandment to love our God and to love our neighbor? 
Well, I want to suggest that we can use two words to frame our thoughts around the environment. Those words are gratitude and rectitude. If we are living lives of gratitude, that will shape our actions. Now, this is true across a broad variety of topics. If we are living lives of gratitude for what God has done for us, we tend to be generous in our spirits. I never tire of thinking that every nickel this church spends in mission and ministry is spent because somebody was motivated to give it out of gratitude for the service of God. Where environmental stewardship is concerned, when we are grateful for something, we treat it right. When you're grateful for something, you make note of its condition and of your obligation to care for it, because not to do so implies ungratefulness. One of my fondest possessions is a clock that sits on the bookcase at the top of the stairs in my house. It came from my grandparents' home, and my mother tells me that before that it came from my great-grandparents' house. After that, the trail goes cold, but it's really old. Before this clock came into my possession, it sat on the mantel in my grandparents' house for many years, in disuse for my entire life. No one thought it worked. When I got it home, I was sitting on the ground for just a few on the floor. For just a few minutes, I heard rapid ticking, not rhythmic, but like an old typewriter clacking. I didn't think anything of it, but when I picked it up to put it on a shelf in my living room, I heard the noise again, and I began to wonder, does this thing yet have life in it? So I opened the back of it, and I found there a winding key, and I wound it up. And then I heard nonstop rapid ticking of the pneumatic drill variety, as in drilling in your brain. And I knew this would go on indefinitely unless I did something about it. So I got out a flashlight, and I looked deep into the casing, back behind the recesses of the clock, and there I found the pendulum weight. I attached it, and the clock slowed to a rhythmic tick-tock, tick-tock. Eventually, after many months, it became erratic again, and I took it to a clockmaker. And he said, it needs cleaning, and it needs care, but it will run just fine. It will probably outlive you. What is its history? Well, I said, it was on the mantle of my great-grandparents' home for many years, and then my grandparents' home. I don't remember ever hearing it chime, but when we were cleaning out their house, I asked for it. My parents took the modern grandfather clock, and I got this little one. Well, he replied, you appear to have gotten the more valuable piece by a wide margin. Now, I took the clock because it made me think of my grandparents. I cared for it because I loved them. And astonishingly, in caring for it, I came to realize that it is worth a very great deal. When we neglect something, it looks like we don't think it's worth very much. In time, with enough neglect, it may come to appear not to be worth very much. But what it is, made by God, 
for good purposes, always remains, and with care and commitment, what is worthwhile can be regained. We're obviously not talking about clocks anymore. That's true of people, and it's true as well of the world that God has entrusted to our care. If we love God, we love what God loves. Maybe it's Pollyanna-ish thinking, but I can't help but believe if our posture of engaging the world is one where we live with deep gratitude to God who has made it, I wonder if we won't find ourselves more cognizant of the ways in which our actions either give honor to what God has made or give dishonor to what God has made. That means seeking the truth about the impact of humankind on creation. And this is the hard part. And then acting in accordance with that truth. But to do less is to dishonor God. Because as far as the biblical witness goes, there is no mistaking that what God has made, God loves. Which brings me to that second word, to rectitude. It's a word that seems to have fallen into disuse in recent years, and that's a bit of a shame. It just means to be concerned with correctness and right behavior morally. If we are grateful, if we live as though we recognize the value of what has been entrusted to our care, if we live grateful lives, we can't help but live with a certain amount of rectitude which seems to me to be a natural conclusion to our series. The great commandment, which we have heard every week, that we are to love God and love our neighbor, appears three times in the New Testament and also in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, it forms the heart of the law. In the Gospels, it is Jesus' answer to the question, what is the most important thing humans can do? And you know the words. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus adds to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's a big call, and for years, for generations indeed, the church has struggled to divine what is God's will for modern life. And this struggle goes back, way, way back, into our formative years. Throughout our history, Christians have sought to take our holy text, which tells us about our God and about the Incarnation, and apply it to our lives. In time, the early bishops began to discern a rule of faith for a way of life for the believer. And what they meant by that was that we would seek to understand God and how God would live, have us live in this world by starting from the vantage point of our faith. We don't start somewhere else, draw our conclusions, and then apply faith to it. No, we start from the vantage point of faith and then apply that to everything using the teachings of the church and the scriptures. That's what the bishops concluded. In time, St. Augustine came to add what is called the rule of love. In the preface to his monastic rule, he wrote, Before all else, beloved, love God and then your neighbor, for these are the chief commandments given to us. 
And he meant that as we seek to understand our way in the world, as we seek to understand the issues of faith, we should be guided by love because it is for love that God has made us. For Christians, the life of rectitude will necessarily be governed by faith, but even more, it will be governed by love. When it comes to confronting violence, relating to money and sex, and making our way in politics, and caring for the earth, the way of gratitude leads us to a life of rectitude. For the short span of five weeks, we have delved into a way of thinking about our place as creatures that God has placed in the midst of a good but complex creation, where we will encounter such things as require us to use our minds. But as simple, but the simple truth remains that as much as our minds matter to God, and they do, so much more do our hearts matter to God. How much we love will be the measure of how we have lived. And living into this rule of faith and rule of love may very well take our whole lives. But what else were we planning to do? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
us together confess what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. The heavens and the earth, the sun and moon and stars, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all things belong to God, and to God all things return.
Creator God, you make all things and weave them together in an intricate tapestry of life. Help us to live a life of gratitude. Teach us to respect the fragile balance of life and to care for all the gifts of your creation. Help us to live a life of rectitude. Guide by your wisdom those who have power and authority, that by the decisions they make, life may be cherished, and a good and fruitful earth may continue to show your glory and sing your praises. We lift up our gratitude and thanksgiving for all the places you reveal yourself to us through your creation and remind us of your love and care for us, your love and care for the flower and the sparrow. We lift up all of those people and creatures and places around this world and in our own community who need you even more in their lives right now. Be with them and bring your healing, your peace, and your justice. Thank you for the breath you give us each day. And hear us as we use it to sing our prayers, to sing our praise and say our prayers. And hear us as we pray the prayer that you taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
The great reformer John Calvin is reported to have said that there is not a blade of grass that God does not intend to make us rejoice. But I think sometimes we lose that capacity to rejoice in the blade of grass. And so my charge to you would be to seek to look at the earth through the eyes of a child. And what I mean by this is if you get down at a child's level, such as a child would see a, a procession of ants and watch it and be captured in wonder, then perhaps we will rejoice. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.